1: U.S. officials are warning Russia is developing an anti-satellite capability to attack satellites using a nuclear weapon. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill, along with other national security officials, worry that Russia could do more than just interfere.
2: We don't know a lot because it's still highly classified, but what little we know is they're looking at something that caused mass damage to our satellites. Probably something with an electromagnetic pulse
1: uh, capability could be spurred by a nuclear explosion in space. Uh, That could knock out our satellites for communications, for intelligence gathering. As one
0: spacecraft is, is on a crash course toward Earth, another one is actually preparing to land on the moon in a couple of days. Intuitive Machines Lunar Lander, given the name Odysseus, sent a couple of pictures back to us here on Earth. Odysseus could land near the moon's south pole as we head into Starship is undergoing final testing, but something isn't right. SpaceX wants to build a brand new Starship launch complex, and it won't be at Starbase. SpaceX hits another record, Nova C sends pictures of our planet, and Japan's incredible
2: HR3 rocket finally reaches orbit.
0: Welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. The man who has a perspective, an opinion, and some information on all of those stories and a whole lot more is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Not only is he a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer, but he's the man we turn to every two weeks for some cosmic conversations.
2: The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the
0: elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasar's galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are
2: Cosmic Conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky
0: oh yes here we are again steve i can't believe it's been two weeks but what a two weeks for news regarding space
1: how have the last two weeks treated you very well frank it's exciting here i wish we had fourteen thousand hours but in the time we have which we're grateful for you're absolutely right i mean i know you want to talk about this whole concept whether it's a hoax or whether it's real what of russia's nuclear weapons and space story That is so amazing. And a lot of people didn't even hear about this. I've asked a lot of good friends of mine who are somewhat space savvy, and they're like, what are you talking about? So isn't that incredible? This whole story as it evolves, we've got a lot to say.
0: Right. So what's the latest? I mean, when this was first reported, and I guess it kind of came to – public attention when uh, Congressman Mike Turner uh, said that the White House should be declassifying information that they hadn't declassified yet. Uh, And then we learned that it was about these Russian weapons in space. A whole bunch of callers, I think the first one being Neil, said, wait a minute, I feel like Dr. Sky talked about this seven or eight months ago, the possibility of uh, of weapons in space, including Russian weapons. What do we know at this point and how concern should Americans be that these Russian space weapons may start shooting down our satellites?
1: Well, it goes along with the congressional hearings in July of last year when we were talking about the UFO hearings. And we still haven't heard any raw details about that because everything was delivered to the congressional individuals in these so-called secret skips. So right now, as you mentioned before, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, reveals to Congress. Quote, well, a serious national security threat, as you mentioned, going further saying destabilizing foreign military capability. Now, the latest we can find out about this is this may be a total hoax too, because obviously not to get into the political realm, which we hear about all the time, maybe this is a way to get people in the Congress that have you know dragged their feet on getting the Ukraine the funding that they want. Now that's another <laughs> theory that many people throw out there. This is I can't prove it, but this is what we hear when we talk and ask questions. When we'll you say
0: specifically about yeah, well, no, no, when you say a total hoax, do you mean on the part of the Russia hawks in this country or on the part of the Russians?
1: Well, I'm saying here in America, this may still be something that we're trying to get people to say. Wait a second, just like Sputnik back in the you know late 50s, when something goes up over our head, oh, woe is us? We have to worry about they could drop something mm-hmm. on our head. Mm-hmm. We don't know, but the but the factual side, if we talk aerospace, astronomy, and such and the space side, this is some of the theories of what this really could be. I mean, people can make up their minds, everybody should. One is it's a new orbital ASAT system. What's that? An anti-satellite system that the Russians can have, whether it's deployed on the ground. You know, we in America have developed with one of the most incredible, you know, Air Force aircraft, the S-15, it developed something that had an ASAT capability, meaning a missile carried on board the aircraft that could technically shoot down a satellite in space. Or they could have an orbital, as we're talking about, ASAP system. Now, it could be, let's say that this is real, an orbital nuclear delivery platform. The problem with that is, a long, long time ago, the then Soviet Union and other nations, including us, signed the Outer Space Treaty, the Space Treaty, which basically in simple English said no nukes in space or let's say even on the moon or on any other potential habitable planet that we try to go to, whether it is or not. Then there's something very strange here. The Soviet Union tested out a long time ago, a very technical thing called, listen to this one, the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. Mm. What is that? We know from sci-fi movies and all these Cold War movies, we would always see, and the military defended the best they could, set up this dew line above, let's say, Canada, where we would see missiles coming in from Russia over the North Pole. But the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System was to place, theoretically, nuclear weapons in space in which they would kind of trick us because all of our defenses were pointed toward the north, a simple attack from the south, where who knows? I don't know if we have the proper defenses now, but at least at that time, when Fraction Orbital Bombardment System was put in place, or at least they tried it, somehow somebody gave up on the idea. But let's talk real time here. We know that the Russians launched Cosmos 2543, which is a satellite that literally has been tracking, I don't know too much more about this, always honest with you in the audience, But what research I can find out is, allegedly, it's been tracking one of our USA 245, so-called secret spy satellites in orbit. Now, some speculate that this might be a kinetic kill vehicle. What's that? That it doesn't fire a nuclear weapon at another satellite. It fires these, you know, tungsten rods or something like that that could disable a spacecraft, literally destroy it. But also, it gets worse. It could have radio frequency jammers on board to interrupt sensitive communications even though they're encrypted, who knows? So that's a possibility. But it's not just the Russians, Frank, that are involved in this. The Chinese have a satellite or a few of these called a CGN 23. Maybe there's a CGN 22, but what are those? We've noticed also that they've released something into space. Now, we don't know if this is a peaceful Earth exploration satellite or it's some nefarious thing that tracks onto a satellite. And I'm inventing this in my mind, but let's go sci fi for a minute. Let's say it has some sort of magnetic bomb that can attach itself to a spacecraft, and at the will of the enemy or whoever we want to call them, you just press a button and you can destroy a satellite. So the jury's out as to really what this is, but what about this finally, Frank? What if our X-37B, which we've been talking about, what is that? The little mini shuttle that Mm -hmm. has gone up for 900 days, let's say, doing some kind of experimentation and who knows, maybe even some quasi-military type projects in space. I wouldn't doubt it. And then, I know this is a long answer here, but it's so fascinating. What about this concept? People have talked about a long time ago that the United States has a very, very powerful weapon in space. It's not a nuclear weapon in space because we abide by the treaty. It's something maybe you've heard of it called rods from God. And what would rods from God do? These tungsten missiles that are not bombs, but when they fly through the atmosphere, because they can handle the heat of reentry, they could strike targets that are not atomic bombs on them but by any means. But these kinetic vehicle rods from space could literally wipe out product, you know, enemies or anything that we wanted to on the surface of the Earth. But the answer finally is, I don't know if there are nuclear weapons in space. I think we have to be concerned.
0: Very interesting. If people have questions on this or anything else regarding space throughout the hour, we'll try and get to as many of your calls as we can, 800 That's 800 although I have to tell you, this is one of those shows where I don't mind if no one calls because I have five hours' worth of questions uh, given what we've observed in the last two weeks. Uh, let me ask you, Steve, about some news that uh, that came across my desk yesterday. Astronomers have apparently discovered what might be the brightest object in the universe. Now, the universe is a pretty big place. And for astronomers to have discovered something that they think might be the brightest object in the whole universe is wild. Apparently, it's, it a, a, it's a quasar with a black hole at its heart that's growing so fast that it swallows the equivalent of a sun a day. What is this? How big of a deal is this? How did astronomers discover this?
1: Well, it's a big deal. They discovered it at one of the largest ground-based telescopes in Chile. But let's first define the term quasar. And if we remember on a comedic way, back, I guess, in the 70s, we had our 60s televisions called quasars. But now for the population now that doesn't know what a quasar is, and believe me, I don't think anybody in the astronomical world really understands it. Here's the best description. It's an active galactic nucleus of these incredibly bright galactic cores. Now, what happens is they feed off the energy from black holes. So let's say in this super bright object, which, by the way, is known as the crazy number, J0594351. Now, that's not going to be a test at the end of the show, but they name these things. they, They go by a series of things called right ascension, declination, and so on. But what this particular object is doing, so bright, how about this? It has the luminosity of 17 billion suns, and that equates to 500 trillion times more energy than the Sun. Imagine this, Frank, a seven-light-year-in-diameter accretion disk. That's the outer edge of this black hole. And it reportedly can eat a star in a day. Now, it might need to go on a uh, special diet because this particular eating continues unabated. And when that happens, the largest beams of energy are sent out into space. Now, remember, the farthest of these quasars, they were probably formed very early after the universe was formed. Now we think 13.77 billion years is that timeline. How about the farthest one we've ever detected is 13 billion light years, but the closest one, and this is you know totally amazing too, is still 581 million light years away. So they discovered this with telescopes. People who have moderate sized telescopes can actually see a quasar. It's a faint star-like object in the heavens. But can you imagine the output of that object in real terms like we described before the energy output on that is even higher than many estimate of these things called gamma ray bursts, which are also quite complicated so that's just off the charts totally otherworldly and totally out in the realm of what cosmic conversation I'll
0: say absolutely eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 going to get to your uh, questions in just a moment um We've been obviously talking a lot about going back to the moon, the interest in America going back to the moon, what's to be gained from going to the moon. Apparently, we launched a a new lunar lander to the moon. Mm-hmm. What are we sending to the moon and what do we expect to learn from this? Well,
1: another great company. We have to look the private you know, companies, private enterprises that are involved in this company called Intuitive Machines, right? We have this little lander that was launched a few days ago on a SpaceX rocket, and we're hoping, maybe, you know, I don't have the exact timeline, but the latest I've heard is that maybe by the early morning hours or the day of February 22nd, just a few days away, like a day or so, this particular object will land with its liquid oxygen and methane-powered engine and land at an area at the south pole of the moon, a very difficult area to land as we've talked about. There have been some successes. There have been many disasters because it's a very difficult place to go. It's an area which the crater name is called Malapert A. Now, if you looked at any basic lunar map, you're not going to find this. It's actually embedded within another big system. And the largest basin on the surface of the moon is something called the Aitken basin. And why we have a fascination of going to the south pole of the moon is that in the future, when we do land humans there and hopefully set up some sort of a habitation module, these particular craters, excuse me, would be permanently in the darkness of the moon and the rims of the top of the craters would be there in, in sunlight. So that's something that I think is very interesting. So we have our eyes and hopes for this particular mission to be very successful. But again, let's put it this way. It's not NASA per se, even though it's one of their sponsored projects. It's a private company that's doing this. And I really tip my hat to all those companies that are doing this from the private side, because I think it's good to have competition and it brings out the best and the brightest I think you would agree. I, I certainly would.
0: Speaking of NASA, though, they've been pretty busy as well. And uh, one of the things that I found kind of interesting, and I'm curious if there's any significance to it, is they're going back to their old logo for the Artemis project. I didn't even yes, realize right what their current logo was, but it's one of those things. My son has NASA pajamas, so when I put him yeah. uh, in his pajamas yesterday, I noticed it. What, um, what's the significance, if any, of going back to the old logo on this?
1: Well, it's just a revival of something. They call it the worm logo. And I can't see, you know, since radio is a theater of the mind, people would have to, of course, look this up, just look up the NASA worm logo. And what they're going to do is, on Artemis II, this is interesting, the two solid rocket motors that sit on either side of the main rocket itself, they're going to, and they actually are doing this right now, they're actually stenciling it on there. I think it's cool because it brings back so much of the inspiration of the early days of NASA. And think about it, Frank, and everybody listening, all the great pioneers that men and women who've worked so hard, engineers that bring all this great science to us. It's kind of, and I think, a, a symbolism of remembering all those great people. But it's kind of a cool looking logo. We've probably seen it, you know, in many t-shirts that are out there. But they're bringing back the thing, as I said before, called the worm logo. But if people are interested, this Artemis II, which will be the next crude module to go around the moon, not land on the moon, is now slated. Forget a little bit. September of 2025. Hmm. Everything's been moved back. We talked about overruns and budget, Office of Management and Budget. You know, everybody's trying to save a few pennies, seeing where they're over budgeted, try to get it done. But Artemis III, right, the mission that hopefully lands humans on the surface of the moon, has been pushed up to or forward to September of 2026. And I've said it before. I'd like your opinion and the listeners. Why do we have to rush this? Let's just do it right with the technology, get sure. it right. We've been there. You know, we we were the first to do it. That's a great kudos. But I don't know, maybe some of the listeners have a different opinion on this, but I just say simply this, in the sense of security and safety for what we're trying to do to put humans on the moon, I don't see a big space race there. Some argue with me and say, "Oh, the Chinese want to be the first to set up a habitation module." I say, "Well, let's cool our jets and Hopefully, by logic and common sense, we'll do it when we do it right.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. 800-848-9222, if you have a question, mm, two open geez. lines. Let me begin with Joe in Queens. Hi, Joe.
2: Yeah, hi, uh, Steve. This Good is uh, more of a question about a transport of space uh, materials on the Earth. Now, say, for example, you, you have a capsule or some sort of big part for a rocket. Uh, you. I would guess it'd be plane, train, boat, or truck. Now, as you, for example, when they retrieve capsules from the the, when Mm -hmm. they landed in the sea, would they disassemble the capsules and reassemble them, reassemble the stuff, or or? When you transport, like, some of these things from one location to another, does that involve assembly, disassembly, or whole part transport of uh, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. say it's the Hubble telescope, whatever?
1: Well, it all depends on the mission. It depends on the product, you know. When they build—very good questions, Joe, a very good comment. What's happening, in my opinion, when you have the larger modules, when they used to have the fuel tanks for the, you know, space shuttle, the main fuel tank itself— they would ship them by barge, I believe, from somewhere like in Mississippi or Louisiana and go around the Gulf and bring them in. But when these spacecraft come back, there's probably not a lot of disassembly that they're doing. They're kind of, except for Elon Musk with his reusable Falcons, I don't think they take a lot of these spacecraft apart you know, and then reassemble them. A lot of them are durable enough. That's the capsule itself. They'll go through it and maybe make internal you know, changes to the spacecraft. But by and large, you know, the only one that I could say is kind of reused or recycled are the Falcon 9 booster rockets.
0: Thank you, Joe. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. We'll continue our cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates in a moment as well. A lot to get to. There's a solar eclipse that is around the around the corner cosmically speaking and if you don't catch this one you're gonna have to wait a while until the next one we'll give you the latest on that also uh they say that the nasa program for warning earth about an asteroid heading our way could be lacking in some respects we'll get into that and a whole lot more this is the other side of midnight as we have our cosmic conversations straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano When we're doing this hour, how could we not have at least one singer that is named after a planet? Uh, that's what Cosmic Conversations is all about, and that's what we're having with Steve Cates, or as we like to call him, Dr. Skye. You know, uh, Steve, I was uh, drawing on our chalkboard with my son last night, and he's got some yellow chalk, and he asked me to draw something with the yellow chalk, and I said, well, what's yellow? He said the sun. <laughs> And so I drew wow. the sun, but I, I used this as an opportunity to tell him about the eclipse that was coming in April. And he seemed totally underwhelmed. It didn't phase him at all. I am hoping uh, most of our listeners will react more, um, you know, more profoundly than Carmine did at two years old. What do we know at this point, Steve, about the eclipse that's coming in April, about the weather surrounding the eclipse and the, the best time to enjoy it? the best way to enjoy it?
1: Well, Frank, great questions. I hope we can do more here on this particular station and shows, and time will tell. But right now, 48 days away, ladies and gentlemen, from one of the most amazing sights in nature. Don't take it just from me. If you haven't seen a total solar eclipse, this is the time to prepare now. So let me just give a localized version here. Let's say in New York City. What can we expect in the area of New York City? On that date of April eighth. the solar eclipse begins at 2.10 p.m., at that time, Eastern Daylight Time. At 3.25 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time, 91% of the sun, prank will be covered when the sun is 43 degrees high in the sky. The whole show sadly ends at 4.36 p.m. Now, why am I talking about New York? Because in the great state of New York, the solar eclipse totality line, if you were, say, right in New York City and you said, I don't want 91%, I want to see the whole thing. If you just drove up, let's say, you know, the interstate that goes all the way up to Plattsburgh, and you got to the, say, Lake George area, you'd still be about 98%. So if you continue to drive all the way up to Plattsburgh, you'd be in the path of totality. You'd see three minutes and 37 seconds of the eclipse. Syracuse, New York is on the edge. Rochester, New York is almost on the center line. Buffalo, New York, and all these places, and I hope to talk more about it. But they get to see upwards of about 3 minutes and 30, or even 3 minutes and 45 seconds of this totality. Now, yes, I'm headed down, I think I've mentioned this before, to an eclipse to be the MC of something called the Clips Music Festival. We're in Junction, Texas. Now, why there? Weather forecast, this is very interesting, and I'm always up front here. The entire eclipse path that goes through 12 states, starting off, of course, as it leaves Mexico, heads to Texas, moves up along the mid portion of the United States, up to Indiana, you know, Illinois, Indiana, goes across the parts of big parts of Ohio, like Cleveland, and all the way up into the Maritimes and New England. But here's the interesting thing. We're gonna be there, but we've looked at the weather down in that part of the country, and anybody listening could you know schedule a planned trip to Texas. But we have about 65% chance of seeing the eclipse with partly cloudy to clear skies. Sadly, not to be a, a spoiler here by any means. The areas to the north, in New England, may have only twenty to thirty percent due to weather conditions at the time of year. But to make it make a point, guess what the big factor is this time? El Niño. So we could have just the reverse, Frank. We could be down in Texas where the predictions are good, and as you know, the whole West Coast and here in Arizona, we've been inundated. Let's pray that everybody gets to see it. But what I'm hoping here on uh, this radio station to be able to talk more about this, and who knows, maybe even an eclipse day narrate a very, very interesting um, event that if we miss this one, we don't get another eclipse in the United States till get a load of this, August 12th, 2045. And if you're planning on that and you're young and healthy enough, the best place to see it would be off Fort Lauderdale in Florida, even better right there in, in Nassau on the Bahamas, get a load of this, six minutes and six seconds of totality. So maybe I need to take some age-altering drugs. But no, I don't <laughs> like drugs. But we'll pray that everybody gets to see this one. And let's talk more about that one. This is going to be the big
0: deal. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. 800 9222 if you have a question. Let me say hello to Thomas listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas.
2: Hi, how you doing? doing yeah, I wanted to really? sky. Uh, I read an article about the uh, shifting of the magnetic poles. And drastically shifting in the future, it could be a big problem with uh, navigation, communications.
1: Yes. Well, we can tell everybody, and of course yourself, Thomas, we don't have anything to worry about at this point in time. We know that the geomagnetic pole of the Earth is wandering, and now it's moving up towards Siberia for strange reasons, of course, that are internal to the Earth. But you're absolutely right. There is going to be a polar change, and there may also be, as he's had in the past, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, a complete magnetic flip. So Thomas, if that were to happen, let's say next week or the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, to pick an auspicious day in the calendar, that would be something kind of strange for us with the electronics that we depend on, but nothing right now that we have to be worried about. And we talk about this on other programs where we look at airports and you see the runways. And I've talked about this with uh, John on on his program you know, on the Sunday morning Mm -hmm. show, the Cat's Roundtable, that as we see, and he knows as a pilot, that you actually see the changing over time of these runway locations in degrees in the circle of azimuth, because that's going on with the Earth changing its polarity. No, it's changing because the magnetic field shifts, so over time it will change. But nothing in the sense that we have to worry about about a complete magnetic flip, Thomas, anytime sure. Steve, a week or so
0: ago, we got kind of a, a close call with a an asteroid about the size mm-hmm. of the Empire State Building coming fairly right. close to Earth. And I know we've mm-hmm. touched upon this issue before, but whenever the these asteroids get a little too close to the planet that I'm currently living on, I do get a little nervous, maybe because I've consumed too many disaster movies that involved asteroids striking <laughs> the Earth and doing to the humans what happened to the dinosaurs uh nasa kind of to reassure people like me they came out with an explanation of what their asteroid war- or a hitting earth warning system is and how it would i don't know protect us what do we know steve about what would happen on a planetary basis if one of these asteroids actually came to our planet what safeguards if any are in place
1: well it's very interesting we need better ones and we can talk about a telescope that's being developed in Chile. That has this capability, the Vera Rubin telescope, which is like this gigantic super megapixel camera. Its job is every night to scan the skies for these interlopers that can sneak through. And as I've said before, the one that we have to kind of scratch our heads and say, hmm, are we really sure there's not something coming from that direction? That direction is when we stare at the sun or we don't do that. But let's say an object in daylight comes from behind the sun headed toward us. That's problematic. But I think for now, NASA has a good understanding of how to control if there's such a way to do that or kind of give us some assurance that nothing is going to get through easily of any small size or any giant size anytime soon. They have a system called Sentry, and they have this algorithm system with something called Sentry 2, which has the ability to kind of track, predict maybe where these objects are going. Some of that works perfectly, and since nothing's perfect, We always have that, like I said before, something that can sneak through. Take the Chelyabinsk event that happened in in 2013. What was that? A 60-plus foot in diameter object that came screaming and ripping the sky apart during an early morning over parts of, of Russia. That object, 60 feet across, had no advanced predictions. But just a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if I talked about this with you, there was an astronomer in Hungary that actually detected an object a meter size, small thing. And he said, I caught it on camera, and guess what, folks, in four to six hours, maybe less, it's going to come over Germany, over Berlin, and impact that around 3 a.m. in the morning. He was right. In fact, they found particles of this in a snowfield, and it became one of the rarest of asteroid or meteorites since it hit the ground. So I think our you know, ability to track these, not to alarm people, but uh, do you really think they would tell us uh, all this whole story? I, I don't, up- but I'm maybe <laughs> I, yeah. a little distrustful of of government
0: agencies from time to time. All right, a lot of people eager to chat with you. Yes, uh, absolutely. Let's, let's say hello to Mark in Newark. Hello, Mark.
2: Hello, thank hello. you. Uh, I want to ask uh, uh, the guy if... Uh, I read somewhere that on the moon that are some warm area. Can't we plant trees or something there?
1: No, Mark, there's nothing that we know of that we could have, like a habitation growth on the surface of the moon. You know, the most amazing part about the moon is it's so hostile in temperature that not the way we see it when we look through the telescope or look in the night sky. So the temperatures there. Just to give you an idea, if you grow gardens or your garden, you know, you, you obviously plant seeds, you water it, give it sunlight. Obviously, none of that exists on the moon, but the point I'm making is the temperature extremes to even show us that this is improbable. Obviously, oxygen is not there. Water is not there. And we have never found anything like soil on the surface of the moon. But I'm sure when we develop these habitations on the moon, it'll be a slow grow and we'll have these indoor greenhouses. But no, Mark, nothing like that that's ever been detected as far as I know.
0: Thank you, Mark. I mean, look, everybody knows that the moon is made of cheese anyway. What can you really plant (laughs) on uh, something that's made entirely of cheese? Right. I mean, uh, let's let's not be silly. (laughs) Hey, uh, speaking of the moon, I did see one headline that said the moon was shrinking and causing moonquakes at a potential NASA landing site, according to a new study. Have you seen that study at all, Steve? And, And what do you make of that?
1: Well, I haven't read that one, but I can tell you this much. The moon, indeed, is shrinking. Now, here's another related story that goes along with the eclipse. Let's talk about sacred geometry, and we'll answer this. When we look at the moon and the sun, the sun is 865,000 miles across. The moon is 2,159 miles across. What does that mean? What two objects or what other objects in the solar system can create these perfect geometry events like solar eclipses? Let's say, Frank, for discussion. That if the moon were 169 miles smaller in diameter, we would never see total eclipses of anything like this. Now, going back to the moon shrinking, the core molten, how did the moon form? It didn't come out of the Pacific Ocean, as we were told when I went to grammar school and high school. No, it actually was probably hit by another object, maybe Mars size, and the two objects collided and thus the moon came out of that, blah, blah, blah. But what we think is happening as we find the cooling core of the moon, it's actually pulling itself in as if you left the grape out and it turns into a raisin. It's shriveling up slowly, but it's get a little bit of the shrinking factor. It's only 160 feet over millions of years, but this causes the surface of the moon to have things called moonquakes. And people are so amazed at that. But even, I think the most amazing thing about the moon was actually detected by the Apollo astronauts when they orbited the moon. You know, if we go back to the lonely man inside, Mike Collins, the Apollo 11 spacecraft, while the two other guys were running around having fun in the sun, he found something out when he put his so-called autopilot above the moon at a certain altitude. The spacecraft started to porpoise a little bit in its flight. And now they know that there are different density regions on the surface of the moon that cause a little gravity anomaly. They're called mascons, and if people want to look up mascons, you'll see that this is something that goes on on the surface of the moon. It probably does the same on other planets, but nothing to worry about at the moon shrinking at any rate. But if it were 169 miles smaller in diameter, what you're all going to see, and those in totality, it would never happen. So that's why this whole eclipse and all these other things with the moon and sun I think, are most amazing.
0: Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Al is in New York City. Hi there, Al.
2: Good morning, Good Superstar m- superstar, Good morning. E, superstar Frank. Listen, I have a couple questions, if it's uh, possible can answer. Two easy ones real quick.
1: Uh, solar, the sun, why is it so much hotter on the edge rather than the interior? And uh, could have, the, the disaster many years ago of chassis,
2: grissom, and white uh, burning up, could that have been prevented? And finally, the third is, uh, why are there so many uh, sinkholes occurring in the permafrost that are
1: releasing tremendous amounts of methane gas? If you could help mm-hmm. me with those. Well, thank you. You, you no, know. interesting, I'll Thank you for the triad there. We're talking about the sun. We know the sun rotates at the equator, Al, about every 25 days. But the truth is, the core of the sun is way hotter than the edges of the sun. Now, people look at this and say, when they look through telescopes with solar glasses or even big solar telescopes, you'll see the edges of the sun look darkening. They call that limb darkening. And what's it caused by is the light is actually coming straight as you look at the sun, if you hold like a pie plate up, and you're looking dead center in the center of that plate. The edges, the light is moving out in a different sideway sideways direction. But the truth of the matter is, here's some analysis. The edges of the sun, because it's not a surface, it's plasma, it's heat, it's fusion, you're looking at about 12,000 degrees to that orange you know, star. The core, wow. 35 million degrees Fahrenheit. But let's fast forward to Apollo 1, one of the saddest events in anybody's space program. Grissom, Chafee, and White, January 27, 1967, as many people may or may not know. They were only 20 or 30 feet away in that Apollo test capsule, talking and communicating with the guys so-called, like here at a radio station where there's somebody behind the glass running the show properly, and they do a great job. So were they. But they couldn't communicate together. They had, you know, a bad line of communication, all crackling. And Gus Grissom, God bless him, he said, hey, guys, how the hell are we ever going to get to the moon if we can't talk within 20 feet? I don't think, well, that could have probably been prevented. The blame was laid on the manufacturer, who obviously had some shoddy workmanship underneath the couches of those astronauts that were breathing 100% oxygen. And unfortunately, something in the wiring, at least what they say, ignited that horrific fire but the big problem and the saddest part without being morbid they were two doors on that apollo one mm. and it would have taken them maybe 15 or 20 minutes to open those under normal circumstances your final question about permafrost and methane deep within the earth just like we found when people do fracking we're seeing areas in those regions of the world that are frozen different distribution of these gases are certainly under their previous lakes Previous, you know, biologic material that's decayed, releasing gas. So, wow, three questions, and I hope I did a good job. Fantastic job!
2: I appreciate the show. Thanks, Frank. Thank
0: you, Al. Appreciate that. Hey, Thanks, Al, appreciate we're, you. We're gonna take one more break, and we'll try and squeeze in a few more of your questions. I have some more of my own as well. Doctor Sky is here. If you are enjoying what you're hearing today, you can check out his podcast, The Doctor Sky Experience. Just search for that on any podcast app, or you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com, search Dr. Sky, and it comes right up. You can also find not only uh, some of our previous conversations, but you can find the conversations that Steve has had with John Katsimatidis over the years. We'll continue in a moment. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Sign at Midnight with Frank Morano
2: Packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then.
0: singing Rocket Man. We have our radio Rocket Man with us for another 12 minutes or so. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. There is nobody that knows more about what's happening with space and the stars than Dr. Sky. Steve, um, you've been telling us a little bit about these solar storms. What is the latest in terms of the solar cycle, the solar storms that are part of Solar Cycle 25, and are people that are radio addicts like me going to have to deal with any sort of radio interference because of these solar storms?
1: Well, great question, Frank. Solar Cycle 25, as we know, is peaking pretty soon. Who knows? It could be April. It could be July. But right now on the sun, how about this? If people go to spaceweather.com, that's a favorite. And you can take a look at a live image of the sun. You look at that big orange ball. You see up in the left area of of the sun, a giant sunspot group now called AR, active region 3590. Now, that one is a massive sunspot. And we see what happens as it treks across the sun. And as previous callers were asking questions about the center of the sun, I believe Al was, that the area that we see, the photosphere, we call that, gets set in the next couple of days to see how this thing migrates. And who knows, it could start blowing off some big flares. And if that happens to do that right in the center of the pipeline, if you're looking right at the center, that would be a direct blast at the Earth, a literal direct blast, depending on how powerful it is. But the interesting thing is, over the last couple of weeks, some of these minor sunspots have produced some flares. This is what you expect during this time of year. So, uh, what do they say? You know, keep your eyes to the skies. But the truth of the matter is, it could wipe out some radio communications temporarily. But if we get a big kill shot, which I don't like that term much, but it's used very often, we're expecting something very big to happen. So it's only a matter of time. But look how electronic and digital world, what the digital world we live in, we're so dependent on this. Mm-hmm. And it could uh, have some problematic things for us in the future.
0: Fred is in Queens. Fred, what's your question? Good morning.
2: Um, good morning. Uh, how vulnerable are our GPS satellites to uh, uh, damage by an enemy since everything, all our weapon systems are dependent on them? I'll hang up the your are. answer.
1: No, Fred, very good question. And I wish we had a lot more time to talk about it. I think they are sitting ducks in many cases. And this top of the program, you know, Frank and I were talking, I hope you heard it. If people didn't you know, catch that, we're talking about the possibility, whether it's a hoax or not, of nuclear weapons in space. You don't even need that. So if they were to hit the entire GPS, remember, Russia doesn't use the same system we do, and nor does China. They're on a separate system. So it's very simply, Fred, that could be a problem not to lose sleep over it. But obviously, I would hope, right, right, Frank, I would hope that our government has some contingency plan, you know, a backup to a backup in case this type of thing would happen. That's what Space Force, I think, is really trying to do is to protect the, you know, the other layer, the space, the final frontier. And at the point in time, I think there's so many things we don't know that they're not going to tell us rightfully so. Speaking of uh, satellites, uh,
0: sorry, Mm -hmm. uh, Steve, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But speaking of satellites, uh, it's being reported that a satellite weighing as much as an adult rhino is likely to crash through Earth's atmosphere this week with all these Mm -hmm. satellites up there in space. Is this something that's going to be occurring more regularly? Are people going to need to look up to dodge satellites falling to the ground as they're walking to work?
1: Well, the first one reported is an ERS. It's a European Space Agency Earth Observation Satellite. It's ERS-2. It may have already deorbited. This is a natural occurrence over time. They were well prepared for this. And just in case people don't know this, Mike, there's an area that we have off of that area way in the deep South Pacific Ocean, let's say off of Chile, Chile where we have a a spacecraft graveyard. We send a lot of things there. The Mir space station was deorbited down in that area, and it's called the Point Nemo area on the Earth. But what's interesting is there's another problem that I think really needs a lot more time than we have, and this is it. As many of these spacecraft come through the atmosphere, they are hopefully incinerating. But what they're doing is they're putting a lot of metallic particles in the upper atmosphere. I'm talking about not the breathable atmosphere, maybe a little bit there way up into the higher levels of the atmosphere, like the mesosphere. And why is this concerning? I think. there was a person doing a PhD in a research project, and I think she got it right. Her thesis was the ever-increasing amount of these metallic and aluminum particles may be changing the magnetic field of the Earth to a degree. Not that we're going to lose, you know, like we talk about a magnetic pole reversal, but it's interesting because I feel for the animals out there. How do birds navigate? You know, you go to the smallest of insects, like a dung beetle, and they say the dung beetle, actually, this is amazing. I read this, and I found it totally incredible. It navigates by at night doing its little job by the sightings of the Milky Way, and it understands direction. But what about all other little animals, birds? How do they navigate? Are we seeing less bees because of changes in magnetic fields? What about whales, right? So, yes, we have to have a system of managing this, and hopefully we can all live in prosperity, and, uh, and a good environment.
0: 800-848-9222. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, good morning, Frank. Good morning,
2: Dr. Skye. I good was going to comment Bob. on, I had seen a car-sized asteroid fly by my house like three Brilliant. or four years ago, and it awesome. it, it, uh, it was at dusk, so I could see mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 piece of Rock material fly by, and then it flew, took off, you know, flying, you know, across the sky, not coming yes. right down at me. But it sure. was fast, yes. faster than I've seen the Blue Angels up close. Fighter jets—they mm-hmm. was the afterburner oh, no. right over my head. They come down on top of me. But then awesome. I was thinking about another question: uh, yes, What do you think about sonar weapons in the Havana Syndrome? You know, have you ever heard anything about that? type of Oh, I sure have. Uh, And I was in the industry. I mean,
1: Frank maybe doesn't know this, but I spent a lot of time in the law enforcement world too. And we did a lot of projects. I know I'm trying to be a man of everything here, but just to tell everybody what what, what you're asking about, Paul, we had these weapons that were systems, they were called. They had this giant noise generating thing. It was like a big dish, you know, like a little satellite dish. And what you could do is it was white noise, but if you beamed it at a crowd or something like that, it would cause the most intense noise in your head that it would almost like make your head seem like it exploded so Havana Syndrome build, which is a whole different thing they're using some kind of so-
2: acoustic weaponry yeah so a micro we built under so- underwater sonar equipment i worked with we built transducers yes. they were called underwater mm-hmm. sound speakers low frequency for the navy wow yes sir. Wow. Well, I'd like to learn
1: i'd like to learn from you on that subject because anything below well, the water i'm not an expert on but
2: how I had saying, to do the have... dirty work. Believe me, the scientific I, I, guys were—you know—they
0: didn't have time to. I teach can imagine, me too Paul. Much. Hey, Paul, thanks for the comment and the uh, and the question, Steve. No, before we, you, before we run out of time here. Uh, speaking of asteroids, evidently the first Venus orbiting asteroid has been found. What's the significance of this? What
1: have we exactly discovered? Well, a good friend of mine, actually a guy named Brian Skiff at the Lowell Observatory, he gets credit for this, and they found a new category in the short time we have of an object that's not necessarily an Earth-orbiting asteroid. This one actually is in lockstep with the planet Venus. So that's interesting. It won't be there forever. Maybe, who knows, a couple of hundred years. But it now tells us something that the inner solar system, which was considered to be, you know, squeaky clean from all space debris, is also part of this whole magical thing as these objects and asteroids would be called Earth orbiters. Now we have Venus orbiter. And it's an interesting object, but the good friend uh, Brian Skip of the Lowell Observatory gets credit for that. And hopefully, this object, uh, maybe more like it, will be determined and discovered soon.
0: Well, let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Paulie is in Westwood.
2: Paul, you're on with Dr. Sky. Dr. Sky. Frank, good morning. Yes, Frank, I got a quick comment for you, and I got a question for Dr. Sky. Sure. Frank, last sure. week you were talking about the box for. oh. Uh, uh, St. uh, Valentine's Day. Next time, what are you going to put in a box? Uh, You know, I'm not following. What box?
0: You had to make a son for Dominic. Your son, right? Uh, Oh, Carmine. Um, Carmine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, just because we only have about a minute, Paulie, let's hold off on that.
2: Let me hear your question real quick. Yes, sir. All right. Does Does the government control any part of our weather, or can they?
1: I don't know, but that's an interesting subject, really quick to answer you. There's projects that we talked about in Alaska for years called HARP. If you want to look up HARP, it's a project that stimulates the ionosphere of the Earth, meaning what were they trying to do, create auroras? Who knows what it is, but it's not just the U.S. that's trying to do that. The whole concept of of geoengineering is the subject, and maybe, who knows, to be on the conspiracy side, maybe other nations do have the capability of shifting weather systems. Maybe that's the reason we have an intense El Nino. I don't know, but I'll keep you posted when I find out. Thank you, Paulie. (laughs) Steve, uh, the hour
0: has flown by, as it always does whenever we're together. Uh, What do you say we do this again in two weeks?
1: I love it, and I want to remind people to go to that Dr. Sky uh, experience, because we have an update not only for the New York listeners, but we'll have many for the entire nation where your show is heard, and they are little localized things talking more specifically about that and the safe way to view the eclipse with the proper older dogs.
0: Outstanding. I've got my pair. All right. Um, again, check out the Dr. Sky Experience. Go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. Coming up, is Lyme disease the result of a genetically engineered weapon? We'll explore it. Until then, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep, your, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.